This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, president of the Interfaith Dialogue Association, an affiliate of the Kaufman Interfaith Institute. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of welcoming to our studio a best-selling author who is topping the book sales charts in the genre of interfaith. And that would be, well, me. How about that? Okay, full disclosure. Yes, I did write a few pages that ended up in a book that contains several essays about multi-religious engagement, because clearly someone was asleep at the wheel. And by the time they regained consciousness, well, the damage was done. And yes, despite my mindless ramblings, the book has done quite well. Thankfully, the other contributors were intelligent and engaging enough to create quite a sizable fan base. And me? I'm just along for the ride till I get found out. The book is called Sitting in the Shade of Another Tree. It contains essays by several authors who were charged with answering one question. What have you learned and come to admire about another religion not your own? And yes, I am a bit biased, but really every one of these is compelling and thought-provoking. I am humbled and honored to share space between the covers of this work with them. And today we have three of the authors, including the man who thought up the project and set it in motion. We're pleased to share just a few thoughts drawn from Sitting in the Shade of Another Tree. So we have with us Keith Giles, Heather Hamilton, and Brandon Andrus. Hello to all of you. Hello. Hi. Hey, how are you? I'm so glad we were all able to get together in the, the, same, the same space. So um, why don't we begin with Keith. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and how this project started. Basically, your role in everything, because I believe you were the prime mover in this project. Yeah, well, one of them anyway, sure. Choir Publishing is uh, the publisher of this project, or co I guess you should say co-publisher of the project, uh, and I'm co-owner of Choir Publishing. We partner with Pathios, which is the world's largest blog religious blogging platform. Because of the nature of the project, it just made sense to approach them. And when we told them our idea, as you just you know outlined, the idea was to get people of different faiths, which they had access to through their blogging platform, um, and ask them a question, you know, rather than focusing on what's wrong with other faiths, which is typically what people tend to do, uh, we wanted to find people who were willing to say what they loved about a faith that was not their own and what they had learned from other faith practices, spiritual practices, and wisdom that they could incorporate in their own uh, spiritual practices. So thankfully, they loved the idea. Um, we, had, we had the title right off the bat, Sitting in the Shade of Another Tree, and the concept, and... Um, so about half of the contributors came from Pathios and roughly the other half came from Choir's authors that we had already published. And we knew that they were on board with this and, and they all turned in great work, including you, Fred. You did a wonderful job. <laughs> Checks in the mail, Keith. Checks in the mail. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And um, if, if I recall correctly, because I am a Pathios uh, contributor from time to time, did you just uh, send out a blanket invitation to all Pathios authors, how how did 
all of us find out that this was happening and that you wanted us to be a part of it. Right. So, well, you know, so myself and my partner with Choir Publishing, Matthew DiStefano, um, we both blog also with Patheos. We, we kind of blogged for a long time, each of us with Patheos. And so um, when we approached them, we spoke with Travis Henry, who's sort of our editor for the Progressive Channel that we both blog on. Um, we gave them the idea and and they helped us sort of target some specific um, bloggers on their network, you know, on their platform that they thought would be especially uh, open to the idea that were either um, excellent bloggers, they had good followers, they were already open to the idea of interfaith, um, you know, uh, writings and concepts. So they they kind of gave us a, a wish list of people to approach. And then once they gave us that list, then we reached out to them um, gave the invitation to see who was interested. And I think most of the people we approached were interested and, and ended up in the book. Oh, that's wonderful. And as, as the project director, did, <laughs> did you, uh, cause I, I'm only saying this because I was in the Facebook group. Did it feel a little bit like herding cats? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, thank you for asking me that because yes, it always does. I've done it. I've done a couple of these and I'm actually working on a couple right now. These kind of books where you have a, you know, multiple contributors. Um, yes. And it always does feel like herding cats. You know, you have to, you do the initial, you know, email one-on-one with everybody to get them to agree to, yes, this sounds, this is a good idea. I think I want to do this. I want to participate. Great. Then you try to get them uh, connected on Facebook and do a Facebook group. So then you can talk to them all at once and you'll have to say it one time. Um, and then, but even then, yeah, it's uh, it's always a challenge. Like, I need your final draft. I need you to approve this edit. I need to get your bio. I need a headshot. Um, and then, you know, all the way through the publishing process, getting them to approve their chapter once it got to the final edit and all that. But um, I mean, to be honest, I think really compared to other projects like this I've been a part of, this one was relatively painless. Most of the people were very eager, very excited, very responsive. And it wasn't as, as bad as it's been in other in other cases, but uh, yeah, sometimes it did feel like that. Okay, okay. Well, I appreciate your honesty. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to start talking to the authors, and technically, you are an author as well. You do offer um, an afterword. Am I correct, uh, Keith? Yes. You, yes. Um, so I'm going to uh, open this up, and I will probably be asking most of the questions, but I don't want to inhibit any of you from asking one another a question if it pops into your mind. So so please, the invitation is, is on the table. And lo and behold, someone who was supposed to join us a few minutes ago just joined the conversation. I want to welcome Safi Kaskas. He is another author in the book we're talking about today, Sitting in the Shade of Another Tree. Hello, Safi. Hi. Hello. Hi, we're just we're just getting started, so sit back. And I just mentioned uh, a minute ago that during our conversation, while I will ask most of the questions, uh, if you have a question you would like to address to any of the other authors, uh, please be my guest. Um, so we're going to start right now with Heather, Heather Hamilton. Uh, before anything else, tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do besides occasionally uh, write in books such as Sitting in the Shade of Another Tree. <laughs> well, thank you for having um, me on your program, Fred. Um, I am, well, first and foremost, I'm um, a mom. I have three kids. I live in Atlanta um, with my husband. And um, yeah, I authored a book called Returning to Eden, A Field Guide for the Spiritual Journey, and that was published through Choir. Um, it came out in February. And so when Keith 
in, you know, sent out the invitation to be a part of this project, I was so excited um, to jump on that because I really had had more to say. Um, and, you know, the the book I just mentioned, Returning to Eden, wasn't really the appropriate place to say that. But this came along, um, which kind of just allowed me to elaborate on things I was already thinking about. So it was exciting. Wonderful, wonderful. I certainly enjoyed your chapter. It's entitled Christ and the Kundalini. So before we talk about your contribution, you should probably define Kundalini. I'm suspecting that not (laughs) everyone who is listening to us right now, they're not going, oh, the Kundalini. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, uh, Heather, I'm going to put that in your lap. Uh, What is the Kundalini? And then we can talk about how Christ figures into the Kundalini. Right. Well, I'll have to back up to kind of um, to kind of explain it because I'll say first and foremost that I did not come upon that word or my understanding of it from an academic perspective or someone who you know had been studying. Um, the word comes from the Hindu tradition, but I, that's not how I came upon the word. So um, I actually, and I, I write about this. A little bit in my first book, um, Returning to Eden, but a spiritual awakening that I had, um, I come out of the evangelical tradition. So, you know, I'm in the South, um, very much the Bible Belt. And, you know, there's a v- very much a conservative, predominant, traditional uh, religion down here. And that was all the context that I had. And so um, I wrote about this sort of spiritual awakening that I had. And at the time, I I wouldn't have called it that it, it felt more like a nervous breakdown, <laughs> but, but in that process, um, there was sort of this energy that was awakened in me, um, that felt very foreign. I didn't have context for it, but I intuited that, um, it had inherent wisdom in it. And I was kind of experiencing different phenomena in my body and in my heart and my, my soul. It was, um, sort of a, a very bizarre experience that I didn't have any context for in um, the environment that I was in. And so as I was, you know, progressing on kind of what I call now this spiritual journey, um, I, you know, started taking yoga classes really with um, the motivation was mental health. I was trying to ground my nervous system and get a hold on everything that was happening Um And as I was, you know, learning more about yoga, I kept coming across this word kundalini and it felt like, um, it, it felt like an accurate description of what I was experiencing in my body. And so, um, that, you know, the Hindu tradition is where the word kundalini comes from, but it basically describes this phenomena of, um, this sort of energy that that wakes up in the body um and is is like very transformative so i i guess i'll leave it there um for a follow-up question but that's sort of what it is obviously it's a very foreign sounding word to western american ears um but yeah Okay. Does that answer the question? It (laughs) it does it certainly does now you admit you had this powerful experience you had an experience of hell and of, yeah. of Jesus in the body of a transgender woman. Now, I would mm-hmm. say that is rare, if not unique. But mm-hmm. now here's the thing. You, you say that this happened in the midst of a nervous breakdown. Uh, 
What, we, what are we to take from this? Are you afraid that by acknowledging what many would call a compromised state of mind, that you run the risk of readers offhandedly dismissing anything you might say? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next question. Yes, that's why it's, um, it's much easier to actually write about it than it is to kind of talk about it. Um, you know, I talk about in my chapter how um, the experience for me, which I, you know, came to define as a mystical, mystical experience, but it led me to um, kind of connecting with other people who had had these sort of experiences or people who had had near-death experiences, which mine, mine wasn't that, but some of the, um, like the phenomena um, was the same. There was like a lot of commonalities in it. And something that was curious uh, about those is, you know, if I had heard about a near-death experience or something like that, before my experience, I would have maybe thought to myself like, oh, I would be telling everyone about this. Like, this is so interesting. And you have these illuminations and epiphanies that are very helpful to your life personally. Like, I, surely I would share it. And I noticed that for a lot of people, they wouldn't talk about these things for years and years and years. And that was sort of my experience as well. Um, you know, I had a therapist that I was working with. Um, I didn't even tell her about any of this um, until really like years later. So um, yeah, just, I think what you're kind of alluding to here, Fred, is the reason why is it, you know, there's not really um, a, a space in social contexts where these kind of really deep um, spiritual experiences, um, which, you know, I, I feel like, are intertwined with our, with our psychology. Um, and so, you know, a lot of times what feels like a mental breakdown also has these spiritual components to it. Um, there's not a lot of language or, or spaces to really talk about those things out in the open. So yes, to your question, <laughs> it's very hard to put language on it without, um, you know, kind of, uh, triggering people in a negative way, I suppose. Sure. I'd like to remind people, uh, if you're just tuning in, that you're listening to Common Threads on WGVU-FM. I'm Fred Stella, and we are talking with multiple authors of a new book entitled Sitting in the Shade of Another Tree. Uh, let, let me tell you this, uh, Heather, that I've known practitioners of yoga and tantra who have been practicing for years but have not had anything anywhere near what you've had, and I am sure that they would be benevolently envious. Um, just just letting you know that. And so mm. there, there, there is something to be said for what you went through, uh, uh, not being aware that what you went through was even a thing to go through. <laughs> so, right, yeah. Um, one other thing too, you cite the myth of the Buddha <clears throat> being born out of the side of his mother. And mm -hmm. then you state that, of course, this isn't to be taken literally. But then mm -hmm. you go on to say, like, Jesus wasn't born of a literal virg virgin. So mm -hmm. beyond these experiences, you've clearly had somewhat of a change in theology. I mean, if you were brought up evangelical, fundamentalist, Protestant, etc., at one point, I'm assuming you did believe in the literal virgin birth, and now you mm -hmm. do not. So can I, can I ask, where are you going theologically now? 
Yeah, um, that's a great question. Gosh, you're really diving in, Fred. Um, <laughs> yes. So uh, you you briefly mentioned this. Um, it was like a big bomb drop that you just kind of threw in there. But yeah, in my nervous <laughs> breakdown, <laughs> in my book, Returning to Eden, I described the experience of, of like being in hell, um, where it was a psychological descent into this dark abyss. And I I just kind of knew that that was what that word hell meant, where it was um, kind of this psychological state. Um, but yeah, prior to that, it was, you know, strictly biblical literalism, literalism um, you know, uh, physical virgin birth. Jonah was really swallowed by a whale, you know, in, in the ocean. But when I was having this nervous breakdown experience of hell, an illumination that came to me was that I knew that this was where jo that character Jonah was. I knew that that's what that story was about. And so um, as I started, you know, my own healing journey, I, I began to discover that the biblical stories from my own religion um, that were already embedded very deep into my psyche were serving more as like spiritual roadmaps. And so, you know, the cognitive, the cognitive dissonance that I had carried um, where it felt like in order to have devotion to God or to my faith, I had to hold on to these, um, you know, stories of biblical proportion that didn't seem like they could happen, but you kind of had to believe it in order to be a devotee to your religion. Suddenly I had, I felt that I had a deeper meaning and purpose for the stories where they, they, I almost, I took them more seriously. I began to think about them more. And so my theological contribution was kind of paving this middle way for people who, you know, feel like they have to choose between science and religion or feel like they have to take everything in the Bible literally, or they have to dismiss it. And I was kind of offering this mythical interpretations of the stories where it wasn't just made up fairy tales that have no relevance, but they had very deep symbolic and psychological meanings that we could use to navigate our own healing processes. And so, you know, I started to understand the virgin birth that way. Um, you know, you mentioned that one and I, you know, came across a man named Joseph Campbell who taught about comparative religions and comparative mythology. And, you know, he described the virgin birth through the Hindu system of the Kundalini and, um, and yoga. And then, you know, he also pulled in um, the picture of the Buddha with, you know, being born out of his mother's side and really described the virgin birth as this rebirth of the divine human out of the spiritual heart. It's, you know, the birth of the human out of the animal man, I suppose, but it was about a spiritual rebirth, well, not you, a physical anomaly. You know, there, a Roman philosopher once said, a myth is something that never was, but always is. So mm -hmm. I think you're, you're tapping into that. Yeah, believe me, uh, you and uh, your, your uh, associates here, I'm sure I could spend easily a half hour with each one of you um, I'm going to try to get a little bit of Brandon and Safi into the conversation before we end this episode. Uh, so thank you very much for what you've just contributed, uh, Heather. 
Uh, Brandon, you. Brandon, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you you got into this project. Well, Fred, I'm envious of your radio voice, first and foremost. Um, I, I, I've actually been writing for quite some time, um, blogging for about 16 years, and I do a substack called uh, Deep Calls to Deep. And I think in 2017, I submitted a manuscript to choir, and it was called Beauty and the Wreckage, Finding Peace in the Age of Outrage. So it was a nonfiction book, just looking at suffering and trying to make sense of how to live life to the fullest, but still hold the tension of uh, suffering and pain and asking profound questions about that. Uh, more recently, I've done a couple of uh, novels. I switched gears completely. I went into fiction and I tried to think of a more subversive way to talk about difficult truths and have people think of things differently within the fiction realm, trying to introduce nonfiction ideas in the fiction realm. And so I wrote in 2020, What Can't Be Hidden, and then subsequently this past August, the sequel, And So By Fire, came out. So with me being with choir over the last five, six years, it provided an opportunity to jump into this project. And I just don't raise my hand for any project, but it just so happened that I had uh, a meaningful experience myself that I felt like that I wanted to share with the larger audience in a way that I probably normally would not uh, share or write. So I was really honored that I had the opportunity to do that. Well, that's great. And as far as my radio voice concern is concerned, you have to understand <laughs> that Rick Rick filters and EQs my voice uh, to get what you hear. In real life, I sound like Minnie Mouse. Not even Mickey. Minnie. <laughs> Okay, so so don't be terribly envious, really. Uh, so you mentioned that your introduction to Islam was during the Persian Gulf War. W were you talking about the first war under Bush Sr. or the second war under right. Bush Jr.? So it would have been the first one. So we'll say 1992. Yeah, yeah, that's so, yeah, 1991. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, I would have been in high school at the time, and so I think I mentioned at the very beginning of my chapter, growing up in Southern Indiana, in which whenever you say something like uh, diversity or denominationalism or anything like that, it's always within a Christian context, and. So my only frame of reference for anything outside of what, you know, religious diversity was only diversity within denomination within Christianity. And so I had grown up, you know, vaguely knowing uh, Muslim figures uh, through television or sports, but certainly uh, no relationships in a very homogenous <laughs> small town community, which I have to say, um, you know, absolutely beautiful community and beautiful people, but it just didn't lend itself to having the diversity that a lot of communities experience now, or especially since the proliferation of uh, internet and social communities. And so, yeah, I would say that it wasn't until then, whenever my first real introduction into Islam and then... Um, I will probably say that that was an, 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 an unfortunate uh, convergence, honestly, because a lot of the narratives that were being painted at the time were ones of terrorism and stereotype. And 
you know, unfortunately, and, and I make this accommodation in my chapter, I talk about how a lot of people like to point at middle America or small towns or small minded thinking and blame people for their thinking and their logic. And to, to a certain degree, everybody has to be responsible for you know, the choices that they make and the way that they view people. But certainly it never helps when narratives are being painted in such a way where it heavily influences and you don't have people within those communities that can help challenge those narratives and the way that people are being caricatured or stereotyped. And so I would say as a young man growing up in uh, Southern Indiana, certainly my view was heavily influenced by the media early on. Sure. Uh, um, We're going to take a deeper dive into your chapter, which is uh, entitled Subverting the Narrative, How Muslim Relationships Changed My Heart. But before we uh, end this um, this episode of Common Threads, I do want to get to uh, Safi. So uh, Safi uh, wrote the book, or wrote the chapter rather, What Can a Muslim Learn from Jesus? So Safi, hello. Hi. I, I, we just have a couple of minutes, but as I said, I, I did want to get you into the mix. So tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write this chapter. Uh, my relationship to the followers of Jesus that I've met at the at the eve of 9-11 in a prayer visual that my wife attended and what, watched them praying to the president and government uh, officials. And then suddenly someone started praying for Osama bin Laden. And we realized that these people pray for their enemies in reality, not theoretically, not something they preach and not do, but something they practice. And uh, we decided to come closer to them and uh, started learning more about Jesus on my own and through them and uh, through anybody I can meet. I'm surrounded by evangelicals and Catholics and all kind of uh, different uh, Christian denominations. I'm a practicing Muslim. And I found that... uh, uh, Jesus, although he's a major figure in the Quran, uh, is known through the Gospels in more details and decided to introduce uh, Jesus of the Gospel to Muslims and introduce Jesus of the Quran to Christians. And that combination of things that need to be done became a mission and I decided anywhere, anybody who would offer me a platform to talk about uh, the wonderful things I learned from Jesus, to go ahead and uh, participate. And this is uh, how I got involved in this. I mean, I knew Keith to be a man of reconciliation with a big heart and a heart for peace among all people. And I shared that with him and I decided to we partner. So I welcomed the opportunity that he gave me. That's wonderful. And and at that, we have to end this episode of Common Threads, but I have so many more questions for all of you. So I'm hoping that you can join us next week and we can continue this. Yeah, of course. Yeah, Excellent. absolutely. Wonderful. Looking forward to it. Well, I want to remind people, you are listening to Common Threads. My name is Fred Stella, and with me today are several co-authors of chapters in the book, Sitting in the Shade of Another Tree, and uh, that includes Keith Giles, Heather Hamilton, Safi Kaskas, 
and Brandon Andrus. And we will continue this conversation next week right here on WGVU-FM. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, president of the Interfaith Dialogue Association, an affiliate of the Kaufman Interfaith Institute. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week, we began our conversation with four co-authors of mine. I'm very honored and privileged to have been asked to uh, contribute to a book called Sitting in the Shade of Another Tree. Several people who have an interest in interfaith matters were asked to write an essay on what other religion might there be that you admire, that you might even be, as we say uh, sometimes, uh, benevolently envious of. And so I did contribute a chapter, as did our guests here. So with me is Keith Giles, who was the progenitor of this project and who wrote the afterword. We also have Heather Hamilton, Safi Kaskas, and Brandon Andrus. So we welcome you all once again to Common Threads. Hello, hello. Good to be here. Right. Hey, Good to be back. And uh, so what I think I would do uh, is um, last week, as I recall, uh, Safi uh, just had a couple of minutes to speak. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with you, Safi. You talked you. about how uh, at a prayer vigil for 9-11, you were impressed by the Christians who were there, uh, especially when they prayed for forgiveness for Osama bin Laden. Uh, And and I'm, I'm curious, Safi, was this prayer vigil specifically Christian or was it interfaith? Were there multiple people, multiple representatives of a variety of faiths? Do you, do you recall? Uh, yes, of course. It was uh, specifically to this group of people who called themselves, they don't call themselves Christian, they call themselves Jesus followers. I understand. And at that time, I didn't know anything about it. A friend uh, called my wife and asked her to join them. Uh, and that was the first time she ever joined a prayer visual, ever. I and see. She was very, really surprised by them praying for their enemies we had she had never witnessed this before 
And uh, based on that, we decided to uh, uh, get to know these people more. And the more we n- known them, uh, the more impressed we were with them. I'm, I'm just uh, curious when we talk about Osama bin Laden's forgiveness, especially on the night of 9-11. I mean, that yes. is, that is uh, uh, pretty earth-shattering, quite frankly, uh, that, that there was a call for forgiveness at that time when the wound was still bleeding. Uh, and yes. I'm just curious if, and you may not have gotten into conversation with them on this, but uh, I, I would love to know, were they talking about forgiveness on purely a spiritual level, uh, or would they have been happy at that time knowing that he would somehow be brought to justice? You know, do you understand what I'm saying? Yes, uh, I'm going. To, I'm going to give you what I understand from what they did. So this this is my analysis rather than an accurate position describing what they feel. I, from, from knowing them, from being with them for over 20 years now, I believe what they were doing were freeing themselves from hatred. They were telling Osama bin Laden he's not going to control their life at all with what he did. As far as they are concerned, they hold no hatred in their heart for him or anybody else. And they are delegating the judgment of Osama bin Laden to his creator. This is at least my impression, and it is the Islamic position, by the way, on this matter. This is what the Quran teaches. So I found myself with people who call themselves followers of Jesus, who practice the same thing the Quran asked me to practice. So when I'm with them, I'm with myself. Mm -hmm. I'm with my brothers and sisters without any distinction, theologically, spiritually, or on any other level. I understand. Now, you also mentioned in your essay, you went to a Catholic school in Beirut. Yes. And, and so you had a catechism class. And first of yes. all, you said that, well, you learned about Jesus there. But, yes. but didn't you learn about Jesus first as a Muslim growing up and, and yes. learning from the Quran? Yeah, absolutely. And learning about Jesus is always a pleasure, whether it is from the Quran or from anywhere else. Uh, I've never encountered anybody in my life, and I'm 80 years old now, who had a bone to pick with Jesus. Everybody is very happy with him. And everybody is pleased that they get to know him. So yes, in the Catholic school, we learned about uh, a lot of things that are in the Gospels. Uh, I didn't see in Lebanon when I was living there much of that practiced. Maybe I was too young. That's one possibility. Maybe I wasn't adult enough to understand what's going on around me. But when, uh, I mean, nowadays, uh, I might see a car trying to cross the street and it's my right of way. I don't mind slowing down and let them go first because Jesus would do that, in yes. my opinion. Uh, right. So, so- I, so I just, I just is, wanted. I mean, this is the difference. Yes, I just wanted to clarify that uh, uh, Catholic school wasn't the very first time you heard about Jesus. You, you no, simply no, no. heard more about Jesus, and and especially from a Catholic perspective. And and w- this is interesting because I know so many people 
uh, from the Middle East and from South Asia who were Muslim and Hindu who went to convent schools. And they always, I, I have not met one person, Muslim or Hindu, from either the Middle East or from South Asia, that is Pakistan, India, uh, who reported a negative experience going to Catholic schools, but they did, they've always told me that they were not to go to catechism class, that part of the deal was that they would go to um, a character building class. So the Christians would go to catechism, but they didn't want, uh, they didn't want to be seen as people who were trying to convert children. Yes. So, so, so and- when, when you were there, tell us about your experience. In Lebanon, it's different. I understand exactly where those guys that told you their stories are coming from. But in Lebanon, the situation is different. In Lebanon, there are 17 different sects uh, living together. Two of these two, 17 are Muslims, uh, or three of them are Muslim, and the rest are Christians, various se- Christian sects, from Catholic to Orthodox to a variety uh, of sects. So uh, going to church is not anything that anybody would look at it as something different. Uh, We all visit each other's places of worship. Uh, We all uh, are neighbors. We should all love each other. Unfortunately, this is not happening today in Lebanon, but uh, this is the way it should have been. Uh, And you're forgetting something. Most of what I learned about Jesus in my youth, I learned from the Quran, not from the church or from the Gospels. I learned from the Quran. Catechism gave me another side of who Jesus was that helped to complete a picture. So I would know I can talk about Jesus to Muslims and I can talk about Jesus to Christians. They will both understand that my love my affection to Jesus or about Jesus is understandable. It's in their holy books, regardless who they are, you know. Sure. I'm I'm extremely comfortable uh, when I'm talking about Jesus. Oh, you said that uh, in in your essay that you worked for six years on a Quran translation that is easy to understand. So, so you must have seen many other English translations of Quran and found that they had something missing or somehow didn't measure up to your ideal. Uh, tell us what, what was missing from the translations that you were looking at. Are you talking in general or when it comes to Jesus? Because there is a difference. The question becomes different. Let's go with general. General, Okay. I just, last July, I uh, put together a conference for all Quran translation into English. And uh, we were able to identify 52 of them around the world. The people who participated in our conference were over 40, sometimes 43, sometimes. And the conference went on for two days. I'm still in touch with these people. And we are planning uh, now uh, uh, conversations with them uh, would bring a scholar to talk to like three or four of them at a time. Basically, uh, notice that some people go into the Quran translation without being prepared 
to translate. In other words, they don't speak Arabic very well, so it's very hard for them to understand the original Quranic language. Or they don't speak English very well, and they cannot express what they understood in Arabic into English. This is basic, the basic problem. In my case, when I was doing my translation, remember, I believe that the Quran is the exact word of God revealed to Prophet Muhammad through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit in Islam is the Archangel Gabriel. But when I'm translating, I'm, I'm basically conveying my understanding of what the Quran says. I am never sure that this is what God meant. So I translate for half an hour and pray for two, three hours, hoping that God will guide me into expressing what was on his mind when he revealed the Quran. And that's a process that I recommend for any uh, Quran translators or anyone translating holy books. At the, end, the, the end result was my own understanding of the Quran still that has no holiness, a translation of the Quran has no holiness at all. The only thing that can be called Quran is the Arabic original. Everything else is the translator's understanding of the book. Understand. There are many other things that other translators uh, needed to uh, gain strength with. Uh, depend. If, look, I'm originally a strategist, a business consultant. So before I did my translation, I had a plan. We, we never gone to do a business plan for anyone without having a plan first. And the plan should include, a, at the end, a methodology explaining why did we arrive? Why did we say what we say based on those assumptions? So I had assumptions. None of the others went through that process. They didn't have that training. So now we try to train every translator of the Quran to understand that they have to have a plan and they have to list their assumptions. One of my assumptions is that God did not need to use synonyms when he was expressing the Quran because the creator of the universe would speak the language much better than any of us and doesn't need the help of synonyms. Every word is exactly in the place where it should be with a meaning that is, that is different from any other synonyms, specific meaning to that word. So my job became, became to try to find the meaning of that word in that uh, 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 part of the sentence that it's used in. So context, became, literary context became very important to me. So th this is basically my observation about other people's translation and where I stand from them. I appreciate that. Uh, uh, thank you, Safi. I would like to remind people who are just tuning in that you're listening to Common Threads on WGVU-FM. I'm Fred Stella, and we're talking about the book Sitting in the Shade of Another Tree. We have several co-authors who are joining us, and I want to get back to Heather Hamilton, who was with us last week, uh, um, and I want her to say just a few more words about her chapter on Christ and the Kundalini. Heather, hello. Hey there. Uh, listen. Hello again. What's that? 
I said hello again. Yes, yes. I, I, I want. I don't want to go further without you telling us the very powerful story that you relate in your chapter on your grandmother. Mm-hmm. So last week, um, I won't retell it, but um, for those who didn't hear the previous episode, um, my sort of spiritual awakening um, happened. I had a very powerful experience, which um, felt like a nervous breakdown. I later came to understand it as a spiritual breakthrough. But in order to get from, you know, from point A to point Z, um, there was a a lot of therapy involved um, and a lot of um, working to regulate my nervous system and the spiritual awakening or that rise of the, the energy of Kundalini was triggered by um um uh, an eruption of unresolved trauma basically um and so while i was working with the therapist for in the months afterwards um i was doing a trauma therapy called emdr and what this therapy does is basically you recall um distressing memories that are um you know that cause overwhelm for your nervous system and put you in a fight or flight mode you recall these memories and then, um, you know, while listening to like bilateral tones or a light going back and forth, um, your brain is basically able to reprocess the memory in such a way where it doesn't trigger your nervous system when you're in similar situations or whatever. And so in one of these sessions, I was, um, you know, I was working through, um, a memory and, um, you know, there had been times in the sessions where in order to like bring a sense of comfort or help or peace, you know, I might have, you know, called on Jesus or, or someone else that could have like helped me um, and, you know, brought that sense of comfort and peace. But in this particular memory, um, I, it didn't, uh, I'm not sure if this is the best way to say it, but it didn't feel like enough. Like I wanted something more visceral in real life. And so I, um, you know, I kind of was sitting there frustrated um, in in the memory and suddenly like my cheeks began to heat up. Um, and so I put my hands up to my face and then remembered that my grandmother had used to hold my face like that. Um, and suddenly it was, you know, even though in real life when that had happened, she wasn't physically there with me. Suddenly it was like that loving energy that she used to you know, that I used to experience with her affection was, was like the healing energy that was, you know, working its way into that session. Um, and so um, I felt that. And then, you know, maybe it was a month later or something, I was um, driving to work very early in the morning as the sun was coming up. And we live in a, an area where there's like a lot of houses, um, but there aren't any sidewalks for some reason. And I happened to see um, an older woman um, like walking on the side of the road through the grass. And, you know, something about seeing her, it, it was just, it was as if my grandmother was was walking there on the side of the road. And I just felt compelled to stop and pick her up, Um, which, you know, my husband who loves me very much is like, you know, never do anything like that. Don't pick (laughs) up random people off the side of the road. But it was like, no, I have to pick her up. It's like my grandmother. Um, And she was, you know, wearing a head covering. And once again, we're in, you know, Georgia. It, It was just very obvious to me that, you know, she wasn't a Christian, she was Middle Eastern. Um, And so she got into the car 
And we began um, talking, you know, and I was kind of asking, you know, where she was headed. She was going to the grocery store at the end of the street. And she was explaining that she couldn't drive because she had um, had an injury where she had lost all of her fingers. So she, you know, she didn't have use of one of her hands, really. Um, And it was just a very um, kind of as, you know, Safi was describing, like, it just felt like it didn't matter to me what religion she was. This was my grandmother, you know, or my brother and sister, like that, that was it. And when she got out of the car, you know, she said, I'll pray for you. And, you know, I, I knew that we had different names or different metaphors for what we referred to as God, but I knew that that we were talking about the same thing. And receiving her prayer was like receiving the love of my grandmother. And I started to understand that, you know, this woman or my grandmother or Jesus were just vessels for this love, you know, that in my language, I might call Christ, but, you know, in the different religions or the way I see it now, sort of different languages, it's called different things, but the essence of it is the same. Um, And so that, yeah, that was the story. All right. Well, thank you very much. And Heather's essay, by the way, in the book we're talking about uh, today is uh, Christ and the Kundalini. Uh, I want to turn now to uh, Brandon, Brandon Andres, who uh, wrote the book, uh, Subverting the Narrative, How Muslim Relationships Changed My Heart. Uh, Brandon, in your chapter, you describe a dialogue that you and other Christians had with some Muslims in your community. And I'm wondering, how how did you end up there, and who, mm-hmm. who organized all of this? I will say that in this gathering, there wasn't as cool of a word as kundalini. <laughs> but it's just fun to say. Um, actually, th- there was an interfaith dialogue that had been going on within my community in Columbus, Indiana, uh, for several years between uh, Christ- some Christians of m- multiple denominations and then also um, the local Islamic group. And one of the studies that we did, I don't know if it was the saint and the sultan or the sultan and the saint, it probably doesn't matter, but we were going to do an eight week study of that particular book. And, but, but what was really interesting is not so much us reading and dialoguing through that book. It was us showing up together and having food set out on the table and having the conversations together whenever we first got together and learning people's names and knowing their family and looking each other in the eye. And, you know, I think from the very beginning, um, obviously whenever you first walk in a room with people that you may not necessarily know, there's a little bit of hesitation, but whenever you start learning about people and their story, it starts breaking down divisions and breaking down walls. And then all of a sudden there's a mutuality and a trust and a friendship that's kindled from it. And for me, that, that was the first part of something really special, which obviously opened up an opportunity for, for me to hear so much more, not just about faith as information, not, not just Islam from an informational perspective, but to hear it from a real lived experience. And there were so many things within that, that I, I just really respected. There was a, there was a sacredness within what they were practicing that I thought I yearned for as a Jesus follower. There was, um, 
rhythms that they had daily, weekly rhythms that I thought, you know, this is something that's very foreign to a lot of the evangelical churches that I grew up in. Certainly we had a weekly rhythm, but obviously within Islam, there's daily rhythms, hourly rhythms. And I was just so impressed with so much of it. There was a a seriousness with which I think it, it contrasted the casualness that I had grown up within Christianity. And that, that was something that was really deeply meaningful. It just, it felt more sacred, more profound. And I was, it, it actually just really strengthened my belief. It, it strengthened my own faith and my own resolve to be more uh, intentional about how I'm practicing. That That's wonderful. We, we just have a, a couple of minutes left. I want to bring uh, Keith Giles into the conversation. As I mentioned, he is the progenitor of this uh, effort. Uh, Keith, tell us, uh, apparently the book is doing quite well. Tell us how well and in in uh, what uh, what genres. Is it strictly the interfaith genre? Is it is it just on Amazon? What do you, what's what's the buzz on the book right now? Right. Yeah, it is doing really well in multiple categories. I don't know all of them exactly, but I think interfaith is one of the main ones. There's also an ecumenical category. Um, and so it's doing well in multiple categories. And and by that, I just mean it's, uh, I mean, I think even the day before it released, it was number one in a couple of those categories. And we're a couple of weeks now uh, beyond the release date. It's still in the, in the top 10, uh, like number five, number six in different categories. That's extremely well. Um, it's doing very, very well. And I think it's partially because uh, it's something so unique. You know, it's so refreshing. Uh, as I said, most of the time when a person of one faith writes a book about a faith that isn't their own, it's to critique it and, um, you know, criticize it. And this is a collection of, of authors and contributors from Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Baha'i, we have Sufis, and I mean, it's it's amazing. It's a, a, incredible, you know, Buddhists and everything. Um, and each of them sharing a, a really beautiful, unique story about something that's really beautiful and profound that they've learned from other faiths. And I think uh, maybe especially because of the time we're in now, when we're watching so much conflict between people of faiths, um, it's something that people are really resonating with. It's, uh, And I, I'm glad. I'm very, very happy to hear that. I've heard nothing but good feedback from people who have read it. Uh, I, I just, I guarantee if, if this is something you're even halfway interested in, you will be, you'll, you'll learn something you didn't know. And uh, you'll be really, really blessed to hear these amazing stories and contributors. I mean, hopefully as you're listening to this interview, you, you, you see, you hear how amazing and beautiful uh, Heather and Safi and Brandon are just hearing their stories, hearing their hearts um, and there are people, you know, we have like, I don't know, was it 15, 16 people that were in this, uh, contributing this book and they're equally amazing. So, so many great people sharing so many stories. Yeah. You know, something um, I, I, I neglected to mention that there were multiple authors aside from who we're having on today. These were basically chosen almost at random, but I thought it was, I think it's a very, very good mix and, uh, Keith, I want to thank you so much for your efforts here. I've got a great idea for a sequel. You say that so many people, uh, they they uh, ask about another religion and they criticize that other religion. Why don't you get a bunch of people to write essays on criticizing their own religion? I, I, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, 
I, I'm sure. I am sure I there that. would be plenty of ammo. Say, I wrote a seven-part book series. I did exactly that. So. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, listen, everyone. Uh, we are down to the wire, but I want to thank you so much, thank Keith Giles, Heather Hamilton, Safi Kaskas, and Brandon Andrus. Uh, for uh, your wonderful contributions and for being with us uh, today. Once again, the book is Sitting in the Shade of Another Tree, available in cyberspace, and uh, uh, I think you will enjoy it. If you enjoy this program, you'll probably enjoy this book. So thank you, everyone. This is Common Threads. My name is Fred Stella, and you're listening to WGVU-FM. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads.